Welcome to the Retzel Health Law Hotspot. Health Law Hotspot is a podcast for physicians and health professionals that covers the legal issues and trends that affect the healthcare industry. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Health Law Hotspot. I'm Erica Adler, shareholder at Retzel and Andrus and leader of our healthcare practice. Today, I'm joined by Justin Harvey. Justin is not only a physician spouse, uh, but he's a certified financial planner and he's founder of APM Wealth which is a fiduciary wealth management firm focused on serving physicians in anesthesiology and pain management. He's also the host of Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast, which has over 100,000 downloads. Uh, And he extensively devotes himself to working with physicians to tackle problems related to practice management, uh, contracts, tax optimization, investments, and how best to help physicians in these different areas. So thanks for joining us. Erica, I'm so pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, today we're gonna be talking about something that I think we both deal with quite a bit, which is physician contracts. And I know that many of my physicians, before they even make it to me, talk to financial planners like you, in particular, you're doing the pain and anesthesia. And I thought it'd be really interesting to kind of hear from your perspective, what you think of some of the contract issues that you're seeing, uh, some of the hurdles that your docs have had to overcome, and maybe some, you know, stories or warnings or whatever you want to call it about situations that your doctors have faced when it comes to their contracts. How does that sound? It sounds awesome. I'm so excited to be having this conversation with you in particular, because I know we're both, we, we both spend a lot of time on this, but looking at it from different angles. So I think this will be a lot Perfect. of fun. Perfect. I agree completely. So let's start with the idea that a physician comes to you and they've got a contract and I assume, you know, they're an anesthesiologist or a pain management doctor, and you take a look at that contract. So why don't we talk through what are some of the things that you immediately look for and that you like to make sure you're talking through with your doctors? Yeah, great question. So philosophically, I look at this differently from an attorney. I'm not an attorney. And by the way, nothing that follows is legal or financial or tax advice. Please consult with a qualified expert if you're making any of those decisions. Um, but I'm looking at this in terms of how can a, how can I help my client, my physician client, build wealth optimally? And to what extent does this employment agreement serve that end. So how is this agreement going to help them on their journey of building wealth and ultimately hopefully creating autonomy in their life and agency and the ability to self-determine their own existence vocationally and personally? To what extent does it help that and to what extent does it hinder that? And looking at a few key areas and helping the doctor think through like there are right now this is a little bit abstract. It's a, you know, 25 page legal document, but in the real world, This thing has real implications for your real life. And so I do try to close that gap in terms of the sort of the education of that process, as well as just in the doctor's mind, like now is the time to change anything that you don't like (laughs) or to consider not executing this thing. Because once you sign on the dotted line, there's no changes. There's no more edits. They've got you and they've got you for whatever terms you mutually agreed to. So you got to make sure that at the beginning, you, you as much as possible, make that agreement amenable to your own desires for wealth building. Um, I completely yeah. agree. I assume one of the first things that doctors are going to be talking to you about is the compensation, mm-hmm. correct? So is yeah. that kind of the number one thing? Hey, what do you think of this compensation package? Is it good? Is it not good? Um, you know, what 
do you look for when you're looking at that compensation package? What do you like to see? What do you not like to see? Yeah, good question. There's, I, it's, it is, I'll be honest, as somebody who looks at a lot of contracts, it is the thing that I'm kind of drawn to at the beginning, even though I know, as you probably do, Erica, that it's kind of a vanity number. Um, it's just uh, window dressing, and you don't know what the doctor is going to have to do to earn that number, or if it's going to be so untenable, toxic in terms of the environment that they're not even going to be around long enough to ever make that number. So, but yes, I like to look at the comp and understand it and understand, essentially, I describe it as a, there's usually a math problem involved. Even if it's just a, you know, 400K salary or whatever the number is, it's still, it's a one factor math problem. That's the simplest possible version. But then you layer on complexity in terms of performance bonuses or quality bonuses, or maybe you get into a more variable compensation model of RVUs or percent of collections. I like to help doctors prospectively do the math to say, if you're on a production model, how many RVUs do you think you're gonna produce? If you're being paid per RVU, you've gotta like do the math and figure out what the outcome is before we know if we like this contract or not. And then right. qualitatively overlaying the circumstances of the employment. And, and here's one of the big gotcha areas, which is if you have a variable compensation and you're kind of on your own in terms of, in finance, what we would call business development, in medicine, you might call it like increasing patient volume. If, you're, if you've got to build relationships with referring physicians, if you've got to find the friends out there who are going to refer to your specialty, and I'm specifically talking about pain management as it relates to my expertise, um, you're going to spend a lot of time doing that. If you're spending time knocking on doctor's doors, working with industry partners to try to do marketing for your practice, you're not, doing time, you're not spending time treating patients. If you're not treating patients, you're not getting RVUs and you're not getting paid. So when you walk in the door on day one, understanding what you're walking into, if you're walking into a big sort of pre-constructed referral network where you're immediately going to be busy versus you're maybe going to have a little bit of capacity taken up and you're going to have a lot of capacity that needs to be filled that's an important circumstance where you want to have a, a guaranteed minimum a base you know we're going to pay you three thousand dollars guaranteed for the first two years while you get up to speed and give you that runway financially so that you're not kind of coming in and all of a sudden you're like rice and beans and that would be an unfortunate surprise that I do right. see happen. And you've probably seen that too. Yeah, I do. And I think, you know, on a related note, um, other things that factor in it, and certainly not just pain management, any practice, I like to know, are you going to be traveling between offices? I like to limit that. That takes away from your productivity. Yeah. I also always ask my doctors, what what is the volume expectation? Why, why are they hiring you? Are you replacing someone who's retiring? Are they so busy that patients are waiting weeks or months to get in? Those are important. If they tell me, oh yeah, well, they're hiring two of us at once or, oh, they've been recruiting a long time and now they finally have me. And I get a little worried because believe it or not, despite the shortage of physicians, I see a lot of doctors very excited recruited, go on, and there's just not even enough work for them to do. And it's very disappointing. Um, you know, maybe they have a guarantee and then when it's over, what do we expect? So I also like to say, did they give you projections on how you're going mm -hmm. to do? Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, it is somewhat of an unknown, but you have to think about anything that pulls you away from working all day long. So uh, you, you gave great examples and there's probably ones we're not even thinking of. Anything that takes up your time can hinder those numbers. Right. Yeah, and one additional facet to consider in this uh, part of the dialogue is the RVU versus percent of collections question. Right. So RVUs are uh, like non-fungible. It is what it is. You treat a patient, you did that procedure, that CPT code, that many RVUs, that's what you're credited with. Right. And it doesn't matter who their insurer is, 
But if you're earning a percent of collections, you could have two different contracts with two different insurers. You're doing the same CPT code, the same amount of work, but there's right. two different reimbursement amounts associated with that work. And so if you find yourself in a practice where you're earning percent of collections um, and you don't have the ability to, you know, push patients either to you or to one of your colleagues or right. somebody's doing the scheduling and the senior partner doctors get the, uh, you know, can kind of get the, the better the litter, payers, right? then you're doing just as much or more work for less compensation. So right. that's an important dynamic to be aware of. And there may be, you know, even just coming in with that knowledge, especially if there's a wide dispersion right. of payer mix and you've got like some really sweet commercial with good contracts and you've got a lot of government payers that are going to be more right. poorly reimbursed. Knowing that at the outset, uh, if you're on an RVU setup, you can kind of sidestep that challenge a little bit more. Right. Yeah, I definitely like to ask my doctors when they're, you know, just getting paid on collections. How are patients allocated? Uh, mm -hmm. Or did they yes. make a commitment to fill your schedule first, which is more a volume question? And then are patients assigned regardless of uh, payor source, which is the second question. Most often they'll get reassurance, just like other provisions of the contract. Of oh, don't worry. That's never been an issue. Very hard to get that in writing, but of course it is yes. really a concern. And I think you'll agree with me that young physicians coming out of training, unfortunately, they often have to take the word of the employer and just yeah. assume in good faith that, you know, they're not going to be mistreated. If you are um, you know, a little bit more experienced, maybe you're a lateral in terms of job, you, you can certainly demand you know, that that actually be in writing. Um, so there's that, that imbalance between, you know, the new and the more experienced physician. I've seen this phenomenon that you've probably also observed, what I have come to call the super fellowship. It's after you finish your fellowship, you get that job, you think this is the job, the big attending role that you've been working like 13 plus years for, right. then you get into it and you realize you're still kind of grinding pretty hard. You're not really making as much money and you have another one year cycle in the school of hard knocks before finally, you know, you then go and get the job that you thought you were getting the first time around. And as much as possible, I try to help my clients avoid the super fellowship <laughs> because we want to fast forward that year. Mm -hmm. We want to get you the job with fair compensation that's defined concretely in that employment agreement that we can, you know, assent to and then step into in good faith. Right. I agree. I mean, it's, it's sometimes your first job works out for the rest of your career. Sometimes it doesn't. And, you know, I know we have talked in the past about the lack of power that young doctors mm -hmm. have. And it's unfortunate, um, but it's true. And this is where I spend a lot of my time is my job, and I'm sure yours as well, and we can't do any more than making sure the doctor just understands their contract. You know, there are good things and there are bad things, but we haven't done our job if they don't at least understand what those are, right? Now, if they if it doesn't work out, um, the volume's not there, uh, the collections aren't great, the payor mix isn't great, whatever, and they're going to leave, you know, that's where I come in because, and, and you as well, how do we get out of this contract and what does that mean, you know, financially and legally, et cetera? So I, I really kind of feel like comprehension of all these things we're talking about is really the most important and almost the only thing I can really do because 99% of my doctors, even when I've pointed out everything that's wrong, okay, I appreciate that. I'm going in with my eyes open, uh, but I, I'm still going to sign it, you know? And, and unfortunately they don't usually have a choice. I mean, there are some other, you know, when I think about exit strategy and we can talk about this is, um, you know, do you lose the bonus that you might be entitled to depending on when you leave, right? Yeah. Is it yeah. you have to be employed on the day it's calculated and paid? Do you mm -hmm. owe back money? You got recruited, you got you know stipend, signing bonus, et cetera. Do you owe those things back? Those are the financial 
type issues, right? And then of course, malpractice tail, which is a huge mm. financial thing. And then of course the G, you know, non-compete and stuff like that. So to me, those are like all kind of financially related as well. What are your thoughts on those? You brought up one good point that I want to circle back on a little bit, which is sure. doctors feeling like they don't have power. And and I would First of all, I'd say that's definitely true. And my observation is doctors feel disempowered. And I would also argue that the entire medical education system is sort of designed to make you uh, feel like you don't have power. You don't have sway. You don't have any say. You're right. just going to kind of hope for the best, step into a thing. And that first step, especially out of training, understandably, is kind of an act of faith. And you just hope it works out. I would also say in my observation right now, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, I am seeing physicians have more power than they think. And when I can like nudge them to assert themselves, even, you know, big academic centers that you would say, I, they would never negotiate. They would never increase a signing bonus. It's happening right now. I'm seeing it happen. And, and the, if you think about it economically, they, um, think about the cost. If we take anesthesia, for example, um, what's the cost of hiring a locums physician to cover a weekend call shift for one of these institutions. It's right. probably about the increment of the additional signing bonus you're asking. And that may be unknown to physicians, but I'm here to tell you, maybe it's eight to $12,000 for every weekend that they don't have a doctor to fill that 24 hour Saturday call. So if they need to hire somebody, whether or not it's you, they're paying this in the background every weekend. Right. And so you do have uh, some ability to negotiate around that. And you can strengthen that position by having what we call the BATNA, the best alternative to negotiated agreement, meaning your second best option. If you can go A or B and you have the ability to communicate with confidence around those opportunities, it really does, you know, eventually those organizations may come around. And especially with those one-time comp, it's, it's difficult to negotiate a higher salary with a big institution just because there's bans and there's a lot of red tape to deal with. But I right. think for signing bonuses, there's, there's more flexibility because of the dynamic that I'm right. describing. And it's, it's a little easier on the front end to have a change there. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not seeing any change happening and I haven't seen that. Um, I always, encourage my physicians to ask, is there wiggle room to go up by X amount? Could you increase the signing bonus? If there is no signing bonus, can I get a signing bonus? So I always tell them to ask for these things. Um, and sometimes they'll get them. I, I, that's always been the case. So I'm not necessarily seeing a change. Now you don't know if you don't ask. And, um, you know, sometimes they're just like, sorry, we, we don't have that or we can't do it. And, you know, it is what it is. At least they ask. Sometimes they'll push a little bit more. Um, but I think you're right. If we can if we have the information to say, well, you, you're going to have to hire locums if, if I don't come on board. So isn't that worth something, you know, first of all, young physicians are, you know, not super confident necessarily to have those conversations. Um, but I do try and encourage them, you know, as long as you're not making demands, I don't think anybody's ever offended. Right. So as long as they, I want, you know, I expect you to increase this to $25,000 as opposed to saying, I really appreciate that you've offered me a $10,000 signing bonus, you know, coming out of training, you know, I, I really have a lot of costs. Would it be possible to increase this? You know, so sometimes it's just a tone um, and sometimes they're successful. Sometimes not. I, I suspect a lot of doctors are just too afraid to ask. You know, the problem is that they like to not, you know, I encourage my physicians to have that first discussion directly with the doctors and or the recruiters, because if there's 20 points, they can knock out at least half of those themselves, right? right. And then 
we talk about what they come back with. The minute a lawyer gets involved and I'm, you know, you're not a lawyer, so maybe they'll talk to you or let you be on a call. I can't be on a call. Their lawyer would have to be on that call. That costs them money. That's hard to set up. That annoys them, blah, 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 you know, whatever. So, Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm trying to really work in the background. I, I let, you know, I think a lot of my doctors can get things by asking. You're absolutely right. Um, some of them are afraid to ask. Uh, you have nothing to lose by asking as long as you ask the right way, right? Yes, so. absolutely. And as it relates to the signing bonus in particular, there's one little bit of a gotcha here that I, I ran into again recently and it brought it to mind was um, sure. if there's a what we call a clawback period for the signing bonus, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to give you 50 grand to sign on the dotted line. And as long as right. you're here for three years, you can keep it. Yep. What happens when you're a doctor and you get 50, it turns into 30 when it hits your checking account. And if your spouse's parents have a health event across the country and you need to move your family after two years, right. you have to pay the 30 that hit your checking account and the 20 that went to Uncle Sam back to the institution. So if there's a clawback period or some sort of contingency around a signing bonus, first of all, I always try to get that removed um, or maybe shorten it to something like 12 months. But secondly, just be aware, it's not just the net amount. They want the gross amount, which includes the taxes that you never even saw. Right. So that really does have one of those golden handcuff sort of uh, dynamics right. that uh, is just something to be aware of. Right. And we, you know, I also argue for the reason that shouldn't apply. They're the ones that let you go. They breach uh, yes. or, or, you know, there's yeah. something, you know, as many reasons as possible. And I think you'll agree with me also that I, I hate when I see the ones that aren't like prorated on a monthly basis. Yeah. Um, you know, that just irritates me to know. And I've actually had conversations with, uh, an employer where I said, what if somebody dies or becomes disabled? And they're like, well, they should have insurance for that. And I'm like, it's harsh. <laughs> yeah, that's really harsh. You know, even retention bonuses as well. So now I see retention bonuses. If you're here for a year, we'll offer you this money, but then you get a new, you know, clawback as you're right. calling it. So that yeah. pushes you out even further, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, you're right. They they want to really lock you in there, but it's so incentivizing to young doctors. They really want the money. They need the money. And these employers know what works, right? Yeah. 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 That's right. And if you put yourself in the position of the executive or the HR department, like, you know, for you as a physician, this is like the biggest financial decision potentially you've ever made in your life. And for them, this is just another Tuesday. Right. And they're going to talk to seven people like you before lunch. So uh, there is certainly a an informational asymmetry, as I call it. And I think that, you know, resources like your podcast, Erica, are really invaluable. And if anybody's listening out there, I hope this is like an encouragement. Like you do have power. You do have a voice. Use it. And it's worth sometimes like tens of thousands of dollars just to get up your courage to write that email. And right. It yeah. does happen. No, I appreciate that. And yeah, we're, I mean, you and I are both always just trying to educate doctors about yeah. things that they should be thinking about. So in terms of, you know, I just mentioned previously all those things financially that affect a doctor when they leave. And I think you probably see some of those. I don't know that everybody's thinking about it. They may be thinking about having to pay back that money, but yeah. often they don't think about the timing on a bonus, right? Yeah. And they may lose yeah. it. Right. And they don't think about looking at the language that if I leave, is it prorated through my date of termination, which is important language to think about as well. So all these things really do tie in with money. Almost, you know, almost everything affects money at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. And 
another as it relates to the termination question and the financial implications right. you mentioned tail that's kind of a one that i'd say a lot of people are aware of one that people don't always think of is the percent of collections compensation structure or the rvu structure right for if you're you know if your billing turnaround is like 45 days average collections for your practice or 50 days or whatever the number is that means it takes you about a month and a half for your practice to get paid for the work that you already did and the, the patient right. care you've already rendered so if you quit on july 1 or june 30 your practice is still getting money for a month and a half. Uh, realistically, it's longer than that because if that's the average number, uh, a month and a half or, or longer from the work that you have um, rendered. And so if you're making 30, 40, 50 or more a month, 50,000, you're talking about like two months is 100 grand of money that you are owed for your services that you're leaving right. behind. So negotiating the percent of collections or the whatever the variable comp component is, like if I treated the patient, I should get paid on that. And you should also have a contractually defined ability to verify that because if you leave on, particularly if it's on right. a little bit of a friction kind of terms and maybe it's not, everyone doesn't love each other at the end, um, being able to have a legal standing to say, hey, listen, you owe me, I was making about 40,000 a month and you owe me another two months, that's $80,000, right. which is more than your tail and more than your vacation and more, like it's, it could be the biggest financial lever at the end of a right. contract. You wanna make sure that you can go to them and say like, show me the books, give right. me the EMR output. And right, I mean, I'll, I'll, play devil's, I'll play devil's advocate on that yeah. because if you came in on a guarantee and they supported you for a couple years before you went to pure production like collections, you may not get your AR when you left, when you leave. And that's considered yep. fair. You know, they they put out the money when you came in and you leave that money on the table when you go. So that is the situation where you may not see a run out. And so I just want to make sure people understand that I always, when I'm on the doctor's side, I'm arguing for a run out for sure, but there are yep those situations where you don't get it as well. So yep. just want to, in case everybody listening, you sure, know, I would say in most cases, you probably don't get it. Uh, but <laughs> if you, if you can. know that this is part right. of the deal, then you can at least speak to it. And right. I, I think you make a great point, Erica. And it's just a question of like, what's equitable to all parties. And yeah. And you, you know, can... on a similar note, um, what about when somebody does leave and they don't work that whole notice period, they give the notice and then the employer's like, um, you know what, it's okay, you need to leave early, you're going to see your, uh, you know, we don't need you to come in, whatever the reason may be. Yeah. How do you compute what is owed for the remaining notice period if they're paid based on, you know, RVUs or collections? I try when I can to kind of get that language in there to say that if you're not allowed to work during the notice period, that, you know, we'll use your average, you know, monthly amount to kind of pay you. But if you don't have it in there and you only have that run out, sometimes they'll just start the run out as of your last day and you lose the rest of the notice period. You just get the run out. Have you seen that? You know, that's a great point. I, I'll be honest. I knew I was going to learn things in this conversation. I love <laughs> that. And I'm going to put that in my sort of on my list, my checklist, because uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I haven't thought through that particular angle in terms of uh, the variable comp and the impact. So, yeah, right. I think that's important. And on a related note as well, um, the worst thing, and I don't know if you see this, is the minute somebody gives notice, suddenly they're reallocating staffing, the yeah. patient visits drop. Yeah. And if you're paid based on production, you're barely producing at that point. And that's not fair either. I try and contract for that as well. Have you seen that when your doctors give notice? I do encourage them just from a qualitative standpoint to assume like if you need to clean out your desk, if you need like whatever you need to do, if you've got stuff that you, you need to like that you can only secure under 
favorable circumstances with, with regards to your employment. Like right. you got to take care of business and assume that whenever you give notice, they're going to like grab you by the arm and escort you to the front door. Obviously, hopefully that doesn't happen. And hopefully you're permitted to give the couple months of effort beyond that date. But I think if you prepare in advance, that way you're just not caught unawares. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I just find it frustrating when the employers interfere with the doctor's ability to produce, you know, I try and put, you know, they'll say, if your production drops, we have a right to immediately terminate you. And yeah. so I'm always trying to say, okay, if you change anything you were doing employer, then no, you cannot terminate me, or you have to then pay me that average amount or something like that. It's a yeah. very hot point of dispute. You don't see it so much with anesthesia and radiology and those kinds of hospital-based practices where it's kind of like the patients that come in are the patients you're going to see, right? But yeah. the more production-based specialties, definitely it's an issue, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great point. I'm so glad we're having this conversation because my yeah. clients are all going to benefit from this now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's talk about other sources of income. You know, yeah. what kind of things are you seeing your doctors doing outside of their practice where they're bringing in revenue and do you see the employer letting them keep it? Yeah. So this is an area of um, significant passion and enthusiasm for me personally, because I look at these physicians who grind and grind and grind and grind and grind. They work hard for the medical degree. They work hard for their specialty specific training. And it's, in my opinion, it's, it's theirs. It belongs to them and however they want to monetize it in a way that doesn't directly compete with an employer if they have one or, you know, take away from that relationship. I can't think of a legitimate reason that you shouldn't be able to do that. So obviously you can't, you know, do something that counteracts your the ability of your employer to benefit from your services. But if on nights and weekends you want to do things, if you want to consult or if you want to teach or if you want to, you know, some of the examples I've seen are like blogging and coaching and those some of those types of things or even even like locums out of town on your vacation if you get 8 weeks of AK and you only need four of them and you want to yeah. take some shifts out of state, like why should you not be able to do that? And right. having that language built in in your employment agreement is required in many cases. And when you sign on the dotted line, you're actually not only signing for the terms of the work that you're doing as an employee, but you're also signing for all the other stuff that you could potentially do that you need to have the capacity to be able to do that. And right. if I have one physician on one hand who's making all W-2 income and another physician who's having W-2 income, but the ability for some 1099 or K-1 income, those self-employment sources from doing their own thing, Dr. B here, the second physician with multiple income streams is going to be, uh, have much more momentum towards financial independence, towards that autonomy, towards that freedom, towards that, if the clinical situation ever continues to deteriorate to the point where they just can't participate anymore and they, they're burned out and pissed off and need to, for their own mental health and well-being, take a step back, they're financially equipped to be able to do so because of these other business or self-employment opportunities. And uh, related is the ancillary participation within the practice. So in addition to the outside stuff, which is kind of what I just referenced, there's also the practice partnership is kind of a low hanging right. example. Also surgery center participation or other ancillary lines in the context of pain management, you got DME, you got labs, you got imaging potentially. And some physicians have a more integrated offering in terms of the, the revenue streams of a particular practice. And if you can participate in those, uh, especially the surgery center is a, a good example of like the one where I see the most pop right now. If you, if you join the surgery center, which is a business with other partner physicians who all are uh, bringing their patients to this surgery center, doing the procedure, getting a, in many cases, like a better reimbursement than you could get in an office, depending on what, what the procedure is, then you're 
running a business that is going to pay a, a profit to, to you, hopefully pay a profit. And when you have that profit coming, not only is it the income, and this is another really important concept I try to reinforce to physicians because it's, it's not necessarily intuitive. You get an income from this ancillary business activity, but there's also an asset associated with that income. So a thing that pays you money on an ongoing basis has value as a business. And you can sell that thing or a fraction of that thing for some amount of money to somebody else who wants that income stream. And a Thank surgery you. center is a really powerful example of something that pays you ongoing, but also uh, you can you know, sell for more money than you bought it for if the surgery center is running efficiently. And do you see a lot of physicians interested in becoming partners in practices still? Or are you seeing um, you know, a trend where they just want to work but not become owners? Um, I mean, obviously there's fewer independent practices out there right now, yeah. but what do you see happening? Yeah, I think that physicians usually have an idea of what they want when they're looking for jobs, or at least they think they do. So there are some that are still oriented towards the, the classic private practice, physician-owned, physician-run, physicians make the decisions. There are certain, I will say pain management is one specialty where that still works. Anesthesia requires critical mass because of the complexity of running an anesthesia business and group contracting and facility contracting and all that stuff. So uh, it depends a little bit. I think in interventional pain, there's it does attract the entrepreneurs, the the people who are willing to kind of make a go of it, and and even I, I had a conversation the other day with um, Dr. Daniel Paul, who's a he's an orthopedist in Colorado who now has his own uh, concierge specialty medical practice where he goes to patients' houses and he doesn't take insurance and he's we're seeing more and more of these alternative models popping up and obviously direct hey. primary care has existed in that way for a while so private practice while there's all the pressures of healthcare are continuing to like bludgeon it i don't think it's gone yet and i'm hoping that there, it may make a resurgence because i think the more we equip and empower physicians to operate in their own on their own terms it's better for everyone right yeah i mean i would agree with you i i still see plenty of physicians becoming owners and practices certainly those type of practices that have the surgery centers and have the ancillaries are also the type that are managing to stay independent, right? right? So they're successful in independent practices, which is why they're appealing to the doctors to, to join. You know, the ones that don't have those options, it doesn't match the specialty, are, are really, you know, struggling a little bit more, um, and it may not be an option. Um, and so maybe those we're seeing a little bit more of uh, a lack of interest. Um, you know, overall, I, I still think doctors for their first job are, are tending to want to go to hospitals and more, mm -hmm. you know, um, institutional employers. But I see plenty of them after that first job, taking a shot, going to private practices, starting private practices, definitely some doctors going out doing concierge, as you mentioned. So I think, you know, the independent practices is alive and well, uh, still thriving. There may be fewer, but I think we're going to, as you mentioned, we're, we're still going to see them grow. I think some of the transactions that we've done, we may see them starting to undo and doctors going back to private practice, but there's so much wrong right now with the healthcare system. There's reimbursement cuts that are just yeah. hurting uh, doctors in many different specialties. So there's so many moving parts. It's just hard to know. Yeah. Right? And if you think reimbursement is actually, a, I'm glad you brought that up. That's one of the primary pressures on private practice, especially an office-based practice without the ability right. to access the facility part of the, the, the calculation. 
Um, if you're doing a procedure in a surgery center versus in an office, in the office, it's a, it's a one factor, you know, it's the physician labor RVU. If you're in a surgery center, you get, um, there's, we're expanding to, you know, the, the malpractice. The facility and the, fee. Um, and, yeah, exactly. And the, right. uh, the overhead components. So right. uh, that precisely to your point, that's why practices that have built their ecosystem in that kind of way, where they're accessing a bigger part of the pie. If you're just running an office-based practice right now, it is CMS. Every year is you're like, you know, undercutting you again and again and again. And Right. Um, and then all the other payors yeah. follow suit though, right? Too. That's right. So, That's exactly right. And it's just the first domino. Yeah. yeah. So it's so hard right now. And then doctors yes. have to be, um, you know, they're, they're so limited by their earning potential if they are relying on insurance solely. Yes. Right? right. And, right. and some specialties, you don't have the option of collecting cash for what you do. Right. right. Yeah. So, um, you know, and then what we need most right now, really those primary care doctors and I know. Um, you know, primary care practices are struggling so much. Um, so I don't know, it's crazy healthcare right now, right? It is. And I'll tell you, I, I remind myself, it's there's so many complicated problems and interrelated challenges. And all I can do, and this is where I'm at right now in my career, at least, I can just boil the problem all the way down to like, how do I help my physicians like keep their heads right. above water at minimum and hopefully thrive? And, you know, we've got issues with nursing, we've got issues with hospitals, we've got issues with insurance, we've got issues with access, we've got, there's a bajillion problems. And when I think about all of them, personally, I get overwhelmed. So I'm, uh, where I'm at right now, I'm like, how do I right. just solve one of these little problems and not worry about all the other moles and the whack-a-mole? It's just like, nope, I'm focused on one mole, like help doctors, help doctors, help doctors. Yeah, you know, uh, hopefully we're doing our part by at least yeah. educating physicians on some of these issues. Hopefully somebody listening got an idea of what they should be looking at in their contract, or they're saying, hey, you know, I should talk to someone like Justin, figure out, you know, what what don't I know? I know that you probably also look at their benefits for them mm -hmm. and help yep. them figure out how that fits with their own personal financial planning. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that tightly, when I tell my doctors, when you start earning money, you better be talking with a financial planner. Uh, you know, don't rely on the disability insurance that you're getting from the employer, right. have your own, you know, just like I mentioned, you should have life insurance because what do you have to pay yes. back some money? You don't want them going after your family for that money. So these things are so interrelated. I think the role that you play in guiding physicians is really important for that reason. Absolutely. And I, I usually will say, I don't know, do you have a financial planner? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, the only thing I know is to say, oh, when does the health insurance kick in? Are you going to need Cobra? That's like yeah. the one and only thing I, I bring to the table on that. So, yeah, I, I love what I do and I'm totally energized by it and, and grateful really for the work to, in some small way, uh, help people in our society who have this like desperately needed service that they, uh, they help us with. So it really is a Great. privilege. Well, thanks for sharing all your knowledge and advice with us today. And we'll have your information and we'll share it. So if anybody has questions, you can reach out to Justin directly. And thanks for being here, of course. Thanks, um, this, has been, this has been the Health Law Hotspot with Justin Harvey as our guest. And you can see more of our podcasts at ralaw.com. We hope you'll join us next time. See you then. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Retzel Health Law Hotspot does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have.